Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Headspace app. Fan fiction. 10-step Korean beauty routines. At first glance, it's just a random collection of passions with nothing much to connect them. But Tara Isabella Burton says, look a little closer. These are all activities people are using to find meaning in a chaotic world. Burton says something has to replace that spiritual urge when people stop going to church. And the way she understands it, religion isn't really being rejected, it's being remixed. We do want, in addition to perhaps money and power and sex, we want community and we want a sense of meaning and we want a sense of purpose. And that these are things that we're hungry for and which, for whatever reason, society is not necessarily providing us in the same way that it once did. And the result is, I think, a lot of hunger and a kind of gap in the market, unfortunately, that corporations have been very successful at filling or at least promising to fill. Burton says she used to be a lonely academic theologian who studied the idea of God, but she had no idea what she believed. In the end, there were no thunderclaps or bolts of lightning, no divine visions to turn her into a believer. There was just the quiet, subtle power of being with a community and saying words she didn't come up with herself. And something that I find really moving is this idea that Whatever music is being sung or whatever words that I'm I'm saying out of the Book of Common Prayer, other people with their own fears and worries and grief and hope have said them and that there is a kind of humbling awareness that I am part of a tradition, that there are other people who, that I am not the only person in the world. And I do find that is particularly moving and meaningful and important. Religion Remixed, coming up. Later this hour, a remix of a different kind. Bryce Thompson, also known as DJ Bryce G, has always had a passion for sharing music. But when he found religion, he had to rethink what he was playing. You know, I give big credit to a friend of mine. His name is Caleb Gordon. He's a recording artist uh, coming from Florida. And he had a very strong standard saying, hey, if you're gonna DJ for me, I don't need you promoting anything that is not, you know, Christian, not positive, not, you know, gospel-centered. Three years ago when I really went for just saying, I don't play music that doesn't glorify God, I don't play music that doesn't glorify a, a healing, life-giving message, and I'm, I'm just not for it if it's not going to help people. Healing and life-giving? You've come to the right place. This is Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. Wherever you land on that scale between atheist and believer, you're about to meet someone who's convinced the human search for meaning and belonging and knowing is the pilgrimage none of us can escape. 
Tara Isabella Burton is a theologian who explores what happens to the spiritual urge when people give up on organized religion. Burton is the author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, and Self-Made, Curating Our Image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara Isabella Burton is my guest. Hi there. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for being here. You study the search for meaning in what you've called our astoundingly unenchanted world. Do you think there's something in the human being that's hardwired to crave a sense of the enchanted? Absolutely. And I think we see now in this era that so many people called secular that fewer and fewer people are affiliated with a given organized religion. About a quarter of Americans and about 36% of younger Americans, millennials and younger, say they're not part of any religion. And yet at the same time, that doesn't stop people from searching for whether it's God or the divine or meaning or purpose I think we're seeing as much, if not more, spiritual hunger in eras that might have had higher self-reported religious affiliation. That's so interesting to me. And I'm, I want to pursue how you understand the spiritual but not religious idea. How do you make sense of the fact that the Western world seems to be becoming less religious and more religious at the same time? So I think that what we're looking at is twofold. One element is the decline in institutional trust. And that's not specific to organized religion, although, of course, it's some, a phenomenon you can certainly see there. But that um, if you look at statistics about public trust at pretty much any uh, civic or religious institution, you know, the church, the police, the military, the journalistic establishment, the scientific establishment, and you see these incredible drop-offs where older people are much more likely than younger people to say, I believe in these institutions, I have faith in these institutions. There is a kind of distrust of authority or the idea that religious sentiment or religious belief should come from the outside. There's increasingly among the spiritual but not religious, about 20% of Americans identify this way. And my data is only for, uh, I don't have the Canadian data, but I imagine it would be similar. But the way in which I think people who see themselves as spiritual but not religious operate is by thinking, you know, what feels right, what feels true, what, how do, I can access truth by looking inward rather than looking at a particular authority in my community, a particular text. In my book, Strange Rights, I call this phenomenon remixing, basically the process of taking different traditions, different rituals, different practices, and kind of creating a bespoke personal religion your practice is something that is meaningful to you, where there are many benefits, but also potential drawbacks. The work you've done most recently centers on the way people create identities for themselves, how we think about the self and perhaps present a, a carefully crafted image to the world. How do you see that as a spiritual pursuit? I often say that strange rights and self-made are the, the same argument presented in two different ways. I'm fascinated by the kind of 
religious, spiritual, moral undercurrents of the seemingly secular society in which we live. What interests me most about self-making, whether we understand self-making as the, the stereotype of the, the self-made man who, who works hard and comes from nothing and becomes a, a billionaire, or the idea of self-making as this kind of artistic creation, the way that you see in celebrities from Oscar Wilde to David Bowie, the idea that self-making is something that in this day and age, I would say everybody is supposed to do, whether it's online or off, that this is sort of part of what it means to be human. This idea is deeply bound up with the idea that whatever is true or real about the self, whatever is accurate, is not just the circumstances into which we are born, but the people that we most want to be. That if we have a sense of ourselves inwardly, that the act of making that legible to the public is not an act of artifice or invention, or at least not totally an act of artifice. It's also an act of expressive authenticity. In so many ways, there is a kind of spiritual or religious underpinning to that. I think the most obvious example of that is the popularity of manifesting this practice that's become, I think, more and more popular. I want to say at least 50%, at least in one poll, said that they uh, believe in, in manifesting, which is just this idea uh, popular in certain self-help traditions from New Thought onwards, that if you kind of focus your mind on something, if you want it badly enough, if you picture yourself making a lot of money or meeting a partner or getting a promotion at your job, somehow this is going to get you in touch with the universe and it's going to happen. That there is some real correspondence between your emotional or psychological inner state and whatever is governing the universe. And the tradition of self-making, the idea of shaping your own destiny, has been from the 18th century, particularly the 19th century onwards, really bound up with these kind of slightly spiritual ideas of making the universe do what you want or getting in touch with the energy of the universe. You find this in the New Thought tradition. You find this in some of the dandies of late 19th century Paris who are really interested in the magic of personality, people like Sar Peladon. In each of these kind of stories of self-making, and obviously different countries and different eras have slightly different versions of the paradigmatic self-maker, what really these movements have in common is this sense that whatever is handed to you, whatever you're, you're born into, whether it's your, your family or your father's job or, or your name, these are just circumstances. These are just accidents. These are not real in a certain way or they're not, they're not deeply true. They're just sort of circumstantially true and they can change. But what you want, who you are inwardly, your innermost goals and desires and secrets, those are the authentic part of you. And I think that that interest in authenticity and inwardness and that desire to reject other forms of self-definition through your community, say, or through family, really underpin both the phenomena I describe in Strange Rights and the phenomena I describe in Self-Made, this sort of internet world where we can be anybody and we can reimagine reality, the sort of geography of our digital landscape in accordance with what we want, suddenly that is much more real than circumstance, as it were. And this, this individualism, this divinization of the self helps 
contextualize both the phenomena of remixed religion, the idea that being spiritual but not religious means finding a religious identity that works for you or feels true or that emotionally resonates, that this is somehow a more authentic or reliable path to truth than listening to others say. I'm intrigued by this phrase that's come up a couple of times, people, that people are remixing religion. Where, where, tell, give me some examples. Where do you see that happening in, just in the, in the culture all around you? One of my favorite statistics is that about 27% of self-identified Christians, according to, I believe, was a Pew study, report believing in reincarnation. Now, if you're sort of any kind of lowercase o, orthodox Christian, reincarnation not really part of the tradition. And yet, clearly, around a quarter of self-identified Christians say they believe in it. So what's going on there? I think that there's a misconception that the spiritual but not religious are the only people remixing. And actually, it's more complicated than that. I'd say, you know, whether you're doing yoga classes or you're getting really into tarot or there was a period particularly around 2016, I think it's less popular now that modern witchcraft was really popular with like young left-leaning women as a feminist act, that you're reclaiming your inner feminine power by kind of doing what it wasn't exactly Wicca, which is its, its own very specific religious tradition, but like neo-pagan adjacent or Wicca adjacent magical practices, sage cleansing or casting spells or what have you. And all of these, whether we're like lighting scented candles or votive candles with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face on them, or going to classes in somatic healing. I was recently lecturing at a conference where alongside talks on um, AI and what have you, there were workshops for ego death and psychedelic meditation. And I think increasingly these attempts to pursue whether it's spiritual truth or personal well-being or inner peace often come not from one particular religious tradition, whatever tradition that might be, but from these kind of wellness-adjacent, spiritual-coded practices that I think have become increasingly commercialized. I feel like every single major city, you can kind of walk down the center and find five different slightly religious-coded wellness boutique stores called things like Rituals or Spellcraft <laughs> or what have you. At some point, it got so normalized that I, I want to say in 2017, Sephora, the makeup store, was selling witch kits with tarot cards and sage to burn. Although there was actually an outcry, not from the evangelical Christian right, but from witches who, who or self-described witches who felt this was like an appropriation of certain religious traditions, especially in the case of sage, indigenous religious traditions. And so they pulled them. But I think the fact that like Sephora, this big makeup retailer, at some point thought it would be a good commercial move to sell like personal witchcraft items speaks to the ways in which these practices are kind of normalized in the para-wellness space as, you know, what do you do? You, you, you go to your workout class and you eat your sweet green salad and you go to your meditation class and you do, you know, some of these rituals as part of this overall mind-body connection lattice of practices in pursuit of being your best self Spiritual wellness, physical wellness, emotional wellness are all seen as facets of the sort of wider project of self-actualization. 
Well, and all of it with a price tag, as you say. I mean, I, I like this line of yours that if the slogan of the Mad Men era was sex sells, then the 21st century equivalent would be spirituality sells. Where would you go if you wanted to have some kind of a spiritual experience untethered to commerce? Even if you go to a church, of course, that may involve money. You may be a member, you may tithe. But I do think about this sometimes is that one of the benefits of organized religious practices is that they do not, generally speaking, charge for admission. But if you are looking to kind of have a spiritual experience or some sort of pursuit of wellness outside of organized religion, chances are you are going to pay for it. And the more popular it is or the more uh, well-known it is, the more likely you're going to pay a lot of money for it. The wellness industry is want to say a $2 billion industry? Every time that I give this number, it is outdated because it is growing so rapidly. Increasingly, if you want to sell a product, to sell it by saying this will make you rich and powerful is kind of dated. To say this will get you beautiful people wanting to sleep with you is dated. And yet one of the ways of selling a product is to say, you know, either this is a morally good product, we support certain causes, we have certain politics, by buying this product, you are entering into a moral community or by selling it as a kind of wellness opportunity that by buying this product, you are doing something for yourself. You're practicing self-care. You're getting closer to inner peace. And both of those, I think one way of looking at it is the really, really cynical way of saying, well, this is terrible which I do think it is, to be clear, and we should dismiss it. But I think that it's also, it tells us something about what human beings are hungry for and what we want and that we do want, in addition to perhaps money and power and sex, we want community and we want a sense of meaning and we want a sense of purpose and that these are things that we're hungry for and which, for whatever reason, society is not necessarily providing us in the same way that it once did. More and more of us do not get a sense of community from, let's say, going to church on Sundays. More of us do not feel like we have a holy text that by reading it, we are able to somehow get in touch with the universe. And the result is, I think, a lot of hunger and a kind of gap in the market, unfortunately, that corporations have been very successful at filling or at least promising to fill. You do uh, the roll call of some of these trends, and you know they include um, the Headspace app, uh, a 10-step Korean beauty routine, a CrossFit class. And I'm not sure I, I would have put all those things under the umbrella of a new kind of spirituality. Let, so let's go through a couple of them. Where do you see the 10-step the Korean facial routine fitting into that, that hunger, that deeper search for meaning? One of the difficulties in talking about religion in the uh, secular age is that nobody can really agree on what a religion is. You know, you ask 10 scholars and you'll get 12 different answers. In Strange Rites, what I try to do is kind of break it down and say, well, what are the different elements in traditional religious practice that are traditionally understood as like, like the building blocks of religion, um, meaning and purpose? Uh, meaning being like, what's it all for? Purpose being, how do I interface with, with the meaning 
community and ritual a little more self-explanatory. And something wellness culture more broadly, I think, provides people with these routines or ways to structure their day, whether it's getting up early and going to a certain class, whether it's putting your 10-step beauty routine in or your 20-step beauty routine in, that there's sort of certain rituals that you can perform. And there is something quite ritualistic even about like posting your skincare routine and having a sense that this is a part of the day that you take for yourself. A lot of the language around it is is not just about whether or not a particular product works, but that you're taking time for yourself, for self-care, etc. And where I think that there's a kind of metaphysical assumption there, or there's sort of more spirituality there than meets the eye, is that often I think wellness culture has a very particular um, ideology that's sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, but that goes something like this. You owe it to yourself, to other people, and to the world to be your best self, that cultivating your body and soul and mind, all of which fit together, they're not necessarily separated from each other, is part of what you do to be the kind of actualized, developed person that you see in your head. That there's a almost a moral quality to taking care of yourself, to becoming your best self, to putting in the work, et cetera, et cetera. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in. Whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, or on CBC Radio 1. If you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Tara Isabella Burton, a theologian who explores what happens to the spiritual urge when people give up on organized religion. And here's a hint. That human search for meaning doesn't go away. There's a line that's that's delivered almost in an offhand way in, in your book, Strange Rights. You say this whole project led you, perhaps a bit unexpectedly, to faith, to becoming a, a believer yourself. Tell me a little bit more about that experience. Was there a road to Damascus moment for you, or was it more subtle? <laughs> no, and it was more subtle. I kind of laugh about this. So the irony is I, I was raised sort of nothingy Christmas and Easter Episcopalian, but also kind of Jewish, you know, go to one set of cousins' houses for Passover and Hanukkah, but also go to church on Christmas Eve. But I studied theology for many years. I I trained to be an academic theologian. I got my doctorate in theology. I really wasn't, again, particularly practicing. I go to church at Christmas and Easter, but it wasn't a part of my, my personal life. And throughout my 20s, both before and during the time that I was reporting on strange rites and getting involved in, in, in witchcraft and wellness and everything in between, mm-hmm. I became more and more interested in the practices of, in my case, Episcopal Christianity, going to church, listening to the music, saying words that I did not invent or come up with, but that were part of a book of common prayer that became a bigger and bigger part of my life. I think I, I started going after maybe a little bit of curiosity. I was interested in the music too. And then at, at some point it became an every week 
thing rather than a Christmas and Easter thing. What I really didn't want to do in Strange Rights, which was sort of written during this time, was either to say, everybody should go back to organized religion because clearly this uh, the secularism thing is working <laughs> out. Nor did I want to say, like, organized religion is terrible. Isn't it great that we can all make our own religions now? I wanted to kind of write about both my own experience, about my reporting, about the experiences of many people that I knew who were similarly spiritually curious, but whose curiosity led them to much more non-traditional practices, be it psychedelics or neo-paganism or what have you. But I think that I became more convinced that certain kinds of robust communities and certain kinds of moral tenets that weren't just about the self and our personal experience of self-actualization were important to a sense of deeper fulfillment and to fostering communities that did have real bonds. And particularly, I spent a lot of the pandemic, of course, not being able to go to church. And one of the things that it did make me really think about is how a community of people who don't really necessarily know each other in any other way except through church or community, the communities there, how do you sustain a community when things are difficult? And I was you know, really proud of the work that my small little church did to kind of keep community alive when we couldn't be there in person. And I do think that there is something generally good in belonging to an organization or an institution where you kind of have to get to know your neighbors and not everybody is going to be in your age bracket. Not everyone is necessarily going to look like you. Not everyone's going to think like you, but you're all part of something and you're just going to make it work. And that needn't necessarily be a church. I had this experience recently. I went to a community board meeting in my, my local neighborhood and I thought, you know, this is something that our very disembodied internet fueled culture has led to is that many of us spend a lot of time interacting with people who share our ideological priors, who resemble us in, in certain superficial ways or, or think like we do. But something that I think it's important not to lose is to be parts of communities where the burden of making this work, getting to know your neighbors, talking to a stranger at coffee hour, just being in the room with people that you you greet and recognize as your neighbors that maybe you wouldn't have met otherwise, that these are all just good parts of life that we should be all the more careful to hold on to as many of our professional lives and personal lives move towards the realm of the disembodied and remote. I'd like to pick up on something you said a couple of minutes ago, because I found this such a striking example, what you found when you turned to organized religion. You were reciting words you hadn't made up yourself or putting them in orders that you hadn't come up with yourself. This was from a book of common prayer. And it, it seems to me that's just the polar opposite of what so much of spirituality looks like now, where it is self-made, it's invented, I'm, you know, coming up with some kind of incantation that's inspired me. And it's not resting on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition and people who have uttered these exact phrases before me. So what's lost when that long lineage of prayers and utterances 
is discarded as as being, you know, just sort of, uh, I'm, I'm not going to read something that was around in the 17th century. Absolutely. It's one, of, it's one of the things I find most moving. I go to a church that's in many ways quite like politically quite liberal, but very old school when it comes to the uh, the the language and the music and the incense, very sort of Anglo-Catholic in, in its aesthetic. And something that I find really moving is this idea that whatever music is being sung or whatever words that I'm I'm saying out of the Book of Common Prayer, other people with their own fears and worries and grief and hope have said them and that there is a kind of humbling awareness that I am part of a tradition, that there are other people who, that I am not the only person in the world. And I do find that is particularly moving and meaningful and important. Sometimes I don't want to be there. Sometimes I'm tired or hungry or hungover and I'm not feeling whatever it is I'm supposed to be feeling in church. It's not like I go every week and am overcome by spiritual ecstasy all the time. Far from it. But I actually think that sometimes kind of showing up and going and sitting there for 90 minutes or two hours or sometimes two and a half hours and knowing that it's not something that is obvious or immediate or is going to come away with a, a immediate wellness payoff, but as part of a long, slow practice towards being mindful of my ethical behavior, being mindful of my my spiritual life, being mindful of the inevitability of death. Like this is a lifelong process that does not have an obvious quick fix. And I think that one of the dangers of judging any kind of spiritual practice by like certain kind of emotional like do you feel a sense of wellness immediately after is to overlook the fact that many spiritual processes maybe many elements of a robust good life are not immediately emotionally rewarding in the moment truth is what you make it there's a central figure in this business of self-making, and that person is the influencer. What have you learned about the role of the influencer in the context of a, a guru, teacher, guide in, in this project of becoming my ideal self? I think something that's really interesting about contemporary influencers is this conflation of artificiality and authenticity. Increasingly, it's become kind of trendy for an influencer to, to be emotionally authentic, or they don't just want to show you something that's too curated. You might, you know, I feel like there's a, it's become a cliche now. An influencer might photograph herself or film herself crying while talking to the camera because this is supposed to be gritty and real. And this seeming paradox that artificiality and authenticity are two sides of the same coin, or that there's a sort of claim to authenticity at the same time as, as that, that it's so obviously manufactured or, or you might say fake, comes from the idea that the most authentic thing you can do is express yourself, express who you think that you are. And if you are manifesting, to use that word again, yourself as a certain kind of celebrity or certain kind of being or someone who looks a certain way or has this kind of highly stylized Kim Kardashian-esque makeup look, that in fact it is 
it is more authentic to present that to the world than not to. And so whether you're cosmetically altering yourself, whether you're adding filters, whether you're just putting on this extremely exaggerated makeup look, it's artificial. But the artificiality is somehow understood as being part of being your authentic self because who you want to be is at the core of who you are. It seems to me there's a certain self-satisfaction that's built into these efforts to transform myself into something better, deeper, more authentic. Do you think that self-satisfied air makes me judge the people around me more harshly? I'm, I'm interested in the hierarchy at work here, those who become the true authentic rendition of themselves and those who just, you know, stay who they were born. The whole history of self-making is unfortunately a story of singling out certain self-makers and drawing distinctions between them and the normies, the crowd, the sheeple who don't self-make. There's obviously this like wonderful democratic dream in the self-making narrative. The dream we find, for example, in the speeches of Frederick Douglass, who gave lectures about self-making and thought, isn't it great that in America, anybody, regardless of race or class, could become a gentleman in a way that in old Europe, it was really who your father was that determined who you are. And now here we have this freedom. Of course, Frederick Douglass, born into slavery, had a particularly, it was a particular statement of optimism in his case that America might fulfill this dream. That said, in practice, as you've pointed out, more often than not, the self-maker, not self-maker distinction was used to kind of set apart two classes of people. People who either had a special innate quality that made them super special genius self-makers, which is one version, what I call in my book, the European aristocratic narrative, or the version where some people just worked hard enough and they had grit and they you know, use their elbow grease and they were successful in making it. And so anyone who who didn't make it just didn't try hard enough. In the 19th and 20th centuries and beyond, those narratives have actually kind of converged in a slightly strange way. There's a sense that some people are successful at self-making and they they sort of have something innate and they sort of work for it. And the way that these this sort of circle is squared really comes back to desire, that some people want it badly enough. And therefore, if you don't have the perfect body, if you don't have the perfect bank account, if you don't have a certain career, if you don't have the right kind of health, it must just be because you didn't think positively, you didn't want it badly enough. And there's a really explicit version of this ideology that started in the 1860s in the Eastern United States called New Thought, which is really the origin of the law of attraction, the secret modern day manifesting. All of this comes back to this ideology of New Thought, which was that if you pictured yourself getting a raise or you pictured yourself getting money or if you were sick, if you pictured yourself getting well, your positive thinking could really transform the world around you and therefore everybody was responsible for their own circumstances. Because if you could think your way out of them, then 
if you were poor and you'd have these like throughout the Gilded Age, you'd have these self-help books that would say things like, no, we shouldn't expand social services to the poor because they're only poor because they want to be poor. They choose to be like this. And if you give them money and if you help them in any way, you will stop them from applying their, their psychic energy to getting rich. It didn't work in many cases, as you can imagine. But this idea that desire and positive thinking is the, really the thing that shapes reality, even in a quasi-magical way, that is absolutely still part of our culture. The most obvious example being not only the law of attraction, the secret, but also in the figure of Norman Vincent Peale, a Christian pastor who got very interested in new thought and wrote The Power of Positive Thinking and many other bestsellers and ultimately ended up as the personal pastor to the Trump family. Donald Trump has, has explicitly cited both Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking as an influence on his own special relationship with truth and attempting to make money through vibes and positive thinking rather than perhaps what we might more conventionally think of as work or truth. The question who am I? The question, why are we here? What, did it, what does it all mean? Questions that have been at the heart of spiritual seeking for a thousand years and more. How do you think the answers have changed in this, on the surface, more secular age, but as you're pointing out, a, a, an age that is still drenched in a certain kind of spirituality? How have the answers to who am I changed? I think increasingly we think of ourselves as I am who I want to be. I am my choices, I am my goals, and these other elements of my identity, my community, my relationships to one another are, are seen as less important. There are ways, of course, where that can be, as, as I've said, an incredibly liberatory thing. But I do think that perhaps we might say that the pendulum has swung too far the other way or too far in the direction against seeing ourselves as members of a community who are responsible to and vulnerable to one another. One of the, the most foundational tensions in being human is the fact that we have an incredible capacity to imagine different lives for ourselves. There are things about each of us that are not reducible to our demographic or our life story. Our inner selves are distinct, irreducible, unique. And that is a huge part of who we are. And also, we are human animals who are all mortal and will die, who need one another for survival, who participate in language and other forms of mass storytelling and only understand each other and ourselves through the categories, linguistic narrative that we have available to us. And like part of being human part has always been this is really weird. We're the, you know, think of think of Hamlet's what a piece of work is a man. Like, it's really weird that we are like angels and also like animals. What's up with that? Is, is basically to be to be a little silly, like that's basically fundamentally at the heart of so much of the world's great literature. Are we angels or are we animals? What's up with that? I love that. It, it's hard to make it more concise than that. <laughs> Just paraphrasing Howell. Tara Isabella Burton, it's really good to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Tara Isabella Burton is the author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, and Self-Made, Curating Our Image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. She has a doctorate in theology from Oxford University. 
This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. You can find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on SiriusXM Satellite Radio, on CBC Radio 1, and online at cbc.ca. I'm Mary Hines. Bryce Thompson, also known as DJ Bryce G, has always had a passion for sharing music. But when he found a new passion and became a Christian, he had to rethink what he was playing. Here's DJ Bryce G on music as an act of devotion and celebration. As a DJ, some people may just see it as somebody that pushes a button and just plays the songs that people want. But I really see myself as a worship leader because of my choice of music. It's actually pretty reverent. My name is Bryce Thompson. I like to call myself a celebration expert. A lot of people know me as a professional DJ. 12 years ago, I started like really DJing, kind of throwing house parties and stuff like that. But then when I gave my life to Christ, I pretty much got rid of uh, all the music I was listening to and really wanted to just cleanse my palate of everything that was going on um, in culture and really start immersing myself in the culture of Christ. It was influencing how I chose music where I would make clean versions of songs. I would kind of reconstruct songs when I just started because weddings and stuff like that, people would still want popular music, but I was like, I don't know because the message, the words, has power. Fast forward to three years ago, you know, I give big credit to a friend of mine. His name is Caleb Gordon. He's a recording artist uh, coming from Florida. And he had a very strong standard saying, hey, if you're going to DJ for me, I don't need you promoting anything that is not, you know, Christian, not positive, not, you know, gospel centered. And he said, if you can't do that, you can't work with me. And I was really conflicted because... I was like, man, I don't mean harm, but he was the one that spoke life until he said, you're a DJ, so whatever you put on the web, whatever you stamp, it's going to have 10 times to 100 times more effect of influence. So he really planted that seed in me to say, hey, I really need to, to stamp my faith on my DJ career and really start placing boundaries and standards in what I do. So. Three years ago when I really went for just saying, I don't play music that doesn't glorify God. I don't play music that doesn't glorify a, a healing, life-giving message. And I'm, I'm just not for it if it's not gonna help people. Bryce G, before being a Christian, was really just somebody searching for purpose within the environment he was raised in. Due to the environment being a lot of I'll, I'll say poverty, but a lot of people are just trying to get out of their circumstances. I will look to what everybody else is looking at, sports, relationships, uh, just finding ways to make money, finding ways to fit in. I was just kind of going, going with the flow, trying to keep up with the Joneses. But also there was something deep down inside. There was something different about me. I was searching for more than just the you know, the status quo. I was really trying to do something different. I was raised around music. My parents actually had a vast music collection because they actually used to throw parties, like house parties, to raise money for rent uh, in times where it was hard financially. So they had all the music 
had a banging system and they always utilized music as a form of hospitality. Anytime we had people over, they would pop in the Sade live concert DVD set and not even watch it. They would just have it playing in the background on the screen and they'll have dinner and hang out. But little old me would just sit at the couch and watch the concert over and over and over till I knew like every song, the order, and also just all the performance moves. So music was just around me all the time. I enjoyed it, I loved it, and I saw it as a useful tool towards entertaining and hosting people. The music I was raised on, but also I was introduced to coming from a very interesting subculture in the Bay Area, California. Uh, people know as the hyphy movement. Hyphy music is pretty much the soundtrack to a culture that was developed back in the 2000s. Well, that was when it was kind of coined, but hyphy started as more of just a description of an emotion, uh, just being hyper, being hype, being energetic, you know, being active, but then it really showed itself in the music, and then it showed itself in dance moves, in the way you dressed, in the way you spoke. So then it really just infiltrated the Bay Area and just became something that you made a lifestyle. A lot of artists came out of that city that people may not know outside of California, but they've heard influences. So Mac Dre, I'm in the building and I'm feeling E40, Keep the Sneak, <laughs> the Jacka, all these different artists were artists that my brother would show me, but then on the other side, my parents would show me kind of the oldies but goodies like Earth, Wind and Fire. Anita Baker. Patrice Russian. A lot of different oldies. So I had a good blend of modern popular culture music, but also the old school popular music as well. The most difficult aspect of my transition, especially when I just started doing it, was starting to turn away gigs that didn't have that standard. Obviously for DJs, Weddings could really be like the main source of income because that's just what worked. And also corporate events that usually play to a public audience. So I was getting those inquiries and I was clear as day, like I don't play this type of music, this is the music I play. And if it's not something you're with, then I can refer you to somebody, but it's not gonna be me. So that was tough because I, I know that I'm gifted at playing music in general. Give me any song, I can make it work and I've done it and I have songs that I would play to get people moving and active but I had to get rid of it so being able to take a rejection or take a no or take a we can't have you you know multiple times and then also having those conversations conversations are hard for me when people ask like why aren't you doing this why can't you do both and all that stuff but I had a clear understanding after I really started reading God's word and understanding like how setting myself apart would really benefit myself and also my family and my community.
within music, I think a lot of people like to play on the fence because they like the beat, they like the music, and it's like, okay, if everybody else is doing it, I don't feel as bad. But when you have your DJ, kind of the tastemaker, kind of the person saying what's hot and what's not, saying like, no, <laughs> that's not it, it actually liberated a lot of people. I was starting to get messages from people where they were like, man, I was on the fence about it, I'm not sure, but just your confidence and also your platform is giving me all the more reason to get rid of this music. I think it really did bring light to a lot of people who were on the fence. And then as far as those who were opposite of my decision, they were kind of still applauding and just supporting like, hey, that's your decision. You know, I respect that. I have my songs I can't get rid of, but you know, do your thing. So that was the initial response. And mind you, at that time when I made the decision, I really didn't have fans. I really just had supporters that liked me. But being able to make that polarizing stance actually gave me a fan base, gave me a platform. The definition of worship is, you know, according to Romans 12, it's like it's our life being a living sacrifice. Like this is this is taking over our life, this commitment, this this responsibility that we have. So as a DJ, I'm actually creating the theme music behind somebody's life decision. And as people in church do, the worship leaders, that's what they're really doing. They're, a lot of times they, they pick songs that match the message of the sermon. As a DJ, I'm doing the same exact thing. I'm looking at the occasion, I'm looking at the theme, like what are people thinking about for that day? And I'm trying to find the perfect songs for people to create chants and celebrate and really, you know, really remember this day. I was able to DJ in Oakland, California, near Lake Merritt, actually a place I was raised around uh, where my parents used to ride bikes and run around this lake. It was a beautiful thing because this wasn't specifically a Christian event. It was open to the public. I'm playing music and they're providing food, you know, just a Sunday celebration type thing. And I'm just enjoying the fact that I have this opportunity. You know, I was really reminding myself, it doesn't matter if one person comes around or a hundred people, but I, I'm going to give it my all and, and play the music that I love to play. I do my thing, I play these hyphy gospel mashups that I've created specifically for an opportunity like this where I'm in Oakland, California, and I'm playing popular beats that people know, but I'm playing gospel songs that they may have heard or they have people that have showed them this music. So I'm playing it, I'm having a good time, and there's different people coming around. They'll eat their food and they'll leave, and some people will stay. And there was one guy specifically that he, he was eating his food at another spot where it wasn't really near us, but then he came closer. And he came closer and he was kind of near where I was DJing. I kind of peered at him, but I was just kind of doing my thing. And I took a moment just to introduce myself to people and let them know that I was replacing the toxic messages that were destroying our, our community and, and putting on music that builds them up. And at that moment, I saw that his, his ears kind of perked up and he looked up and uh, he was listening a lot more intently. So then after a few songs, he got up, walked over to me and passed me a napkin. And uh, he made it clear that it was a message on a napkin. But I, I looked at the message and he said, hey, you know, I'm a Muslim, but the songs that you are presenting and your message and your mission is very inspiring. It gives me a lot of hope. Keep going. 
<laughs> and that right there just made the whole day worth it. You know, it didn't matter whoever else came, but it just, that interaction, that impact. And even we had a little conversation after where he's just really encouraged because he's like, I've never really heard gospel music like this. And I, I'm interested. So we, we got connected. So it was really encouraging and, and just gave me a reason to keep going out there and presenting the music that I, that I make. So there's different types of DJs, some freestyle, some do organized sets. So I actually organize my set. I put together the list of songs that I want to play. I organize them in order. I think of what I'm going to do when I play these songs. It's almost like my own performance and I'm just acting like each artist. I have a background of playing basketball and this is the closest I get to sports. This is the closest I get to battle. It's just a whole anticipation behind it that brings me back to just competition because I spend hours and hours preparing the set, imagining the crowd. It's like a chess game because I'm thinking if I play this song, I got to play this song. And if I play this song, I got to do this and that. So I'm thinking this all through in my mind, in my room, on my computer, in my notebook, listing it out, trying to create this story, this narrative behind it that makes people really like enjoy, even if they don't know the behind the scenes. So when we get to the day of, it's kind of like Christmas morning. I'm just like excited, nervous, and just thinking through the order back and forth in my mind. But once I get to the board and press play, hey, ready? Y'all ready? it's just time. It's time to celebrate and let loose. And no matter how many people are there, one, two, a hundred thousand, I'm quickly trying to see who's ready to just let loose and have a good time. And I'm going to make sure they have the time of their life and all the wallflowers and the skeptics and all those other people, I let them do what they do. Bryce Thompson, also known as Bryce G, is a professional DJ whose work centers on celebration. He spoke to you from his home in Orlando, Florida. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Theo Van Buzikam, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and Armand Egbali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer of Tapestry is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.